there was a figure, a theologian in the early church. I want to say the early church, this is the earliest church. This man was born in 185 AD, and he was known and forever will be in history as one of the greatest theologians who ever lived, who was wrong about basically everything. That's his reputation. And one of the things that he got wrong was the subject of sanctification. If you're here last week, you can nod at me because we learned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. It could be translated, this is the will of God for your life, your holiness. And we saw that it's a lifelong practice where through your trials and tribulations and your circumstances and through the spirit working in you and God's revealed word that it's a process where he takes you from being declared holy and righteous to actually being made like Jesus. You become holy. Your heart bleeds now for the things that you, you used to hate. And he calls this sanctification. And Origen picking up on this and teaching on this, he came up with a threefold pathway or threefold means of sanctification. And as he's going through this, you'll see that some of them are very good and we get to the third one and it's not so helpful. But his, his influence is tremendous. It worked its way out through all the history of the church and is written about even in books in our day. And so what is his process? S step one, he would call illumination. We would call it conversion because you can't be made like Jesus, the Holy One of God, if you're not saved. You have to have the Holy Spirit if you're ever going to have hopes of being made holy. So step one for being sanctified, the first means of being sanctified is to be a Christian. The second one, he says with his fancy words, is purgation. Because he says you have to physically purge out the, the evil in you. You want to put away the things that God says is sinful. And not focus on those, but focus on things that God declares to be good. So you're putting off the old man and you're putting on the new man. You're putting off the old self, putting on the new self. The old is passing away and this is increasing. Illumination and purgation. And for most Christians today, we would stop there. If we were thinking actively about this and we say, that's it. That's a whole lifelong struggle. That's what we do. You're saved and you're sanctified. You're putting on the new man. But Origen goes one step further and he says, no, if you want to be a really good Christian, there's a third pathway. And he calls it asceticism. And dictionary definition is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. So Christians might get into earthly pleasures and they might allow themselves, you know, a chocolate cake or a fine wine, or, or, but, but the best Christians, they would never do that. You get rid of not only the bad things or the, the things that God declares to be evil, but to be truly sanctified, he would say you get rid of the good things as well. The things that God declares to be good. And what did he have in mind? Well, any worldly pleasure. But most specifically, he would say not only put on Christ, but put on poverty. Because the best Christians don't concern themselves with money. You graduate from those baser things. So no money for the best Christians. And the second one, he would say, put on celibacy, meaning no sex. Because that's something that the, the best Christians graduate from. So they can be solely focused on orphans and widows and sojourners and, and focused on Jesus Christ. You not only get rid of the evil, but you begin to put away even the good. And this made its way through church history. As a matter of fact, the, for the first time, Christianity became legal 
in Rome in 313, all of a sudden, because the emperor is Christian, everybody else wants to be Christian too. And so how do you differentiate in a culture, and you can think back to the 80s and 90s and even the 70s in Christian culture when everybody's claiming Christianity, and there's all kinds of benefits to claiming Christianity, how can you tell the mere professors from those who truly have the Holy Spirit? And their answer in this early church was Origin's threefold process. If you want to be a true Christian, the best Christians get rid of not only what is evil, but what is good. And they hold on to poverty and celibacy. And I think if we're, we're honest with this, this comes into our own thinking in our church and in our culture. Or to be a true Christian, this comes into my thinking. I've, I've been guilty of this in years past and even today subconsciously of thinking that a Christian can live in the country club, sure. But good Christians would never live in such a nice house. The good Christians would never live in the back of the country club. Or a Christian might drive a Mercedes, but a good Christian has graduated above that. He wouldn't have or she wouldn't have a nice car you give that money to the poor, or the best Christians don't allow their minds to consider alcohol or sex because the best Christians are solely focused on the orphan and the widow. And this ignores the fact that a lot of these things are the very things that God promises to bless his people with, or are means that God gives to bless his people. And we forget the fact that a healthy financial life can be the fruit of following God's principles for finances. If you read the Proverbs and you live your life, it doesn't happen every time. But if you live your life according to biblical principles, it can go well for you. And God can bless you with material blessings, which is why in the Proverbs he says, a good man, a good man will leave an inheritance to his children's children. Because that might not be the case for everyone, but that is the hope, that's the call. And it ignores the fact as well that a healthy sex life can be the fruit of a healthy marriage. And so if you open up scripture and you do all the things that scripture commands you to do and you build a relationship with your wife or with your husband, husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husbands, uh, there's certain benefits that come from a relationship like that. And so to cut that off and say, no, we're getting rid of the good in order to be sanctified flies in the face of the very blessings that God gives us in this life. And so God does not command a Christian in scripture to put away good things. You may choose to do it. But he never commands you to put away good things to become a better Christian. He commands you to put off the old self and to focus your, your, your interests on Christ and his righteousness. And he doesn't command a Christian anywhere to put on poverty or celibacy. But he commands them to put on righteousness and holiness and honor. And so you can choose to become a monk if you want to. But that does not make you a better Christian than the dad who works a nine to five. And you may choose to be celibate in this world, and that's okay. God says there's, there's a lot of people that are called to that. But that does not make you a better Christian than the mom of four kids who's taking care of her children day in and day out. One is not better than the other. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, over the next two weeks, the very thing that origin forbids are the very things that God redeems. And he addresses the issues of money and sex, and his teaching is not... Oh, you Thessalonian church, you faithful church, one day you're going to graduate from these things and you're going to focus on what's really important. No, he's going to say within the realm of your work life, this is God's will for you. And he's going to say within, even today in our passage today, within the realm of your sex life, this is God's will for you. He has a will for it. He has a plan for it. He has a design for it. And so let's see that this morning. Open up with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll pick up this week where we left off last week in, in verse 3. 
Paul says to the faithful church, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So a reminder, there was a, a preoccupation with Jesus Christ while he walked this earth to do the will of God. He was, he was obsessed with it. That was his focus. That's what he came to, to accomplish. And he says, you know, the disciples are asking him, what food does Jesus have that we don't know about? And he says, my food is to do the will of my Father who's in heaven. My very sustenance, what drives me and motivates me is to do God's will. And he didn't do anything ever that God didn't authorize him to do. And his life, we learned, again last week, perfectly pleased God. Over and over, God says, your life is pleasing to me. And if you're a Christian... And the Holy Spirit has come into your life and light has shed your soul and you've been in a relationship now with the Lord of glory. Christ's convictions are your convictions. And now you say, it is my food to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Is that your, is that your desire? My desire is to please God in heaven. And as he says in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask with that statement, what's God's will for my life? What does God will for me? And if we're going to answer that question, the word will is used 62 times in the New Testament, almost exclusively talking about God's desires and, or the will of God, or as it says often, the will of the Father. And predominant usage is, is, is talking about God, and the dictionary defines it as what one wishes to happen, predominantly the will of God accomplished by the activity of others to whom one assigns. So what he's saying is whatever this will of God is, it's accomplished by a means, by other people. It's accomplished by Christ. And it's accomplished by the desires and the activity of this church. God's will is done in and through us. And God's will is accomplished in the New Testament through his church. And in the New Testament, as you read, there are certain times where God explicitly says, this is my will for you. In no uncertain terms. And he begins saying it in Ephesians 5.17 where he says, don't be foolish. A foolish man doesn't know the will of God. He says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And what does he say in Ephesians? Is his will for you in Christ. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Live your life as if you're in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus because you are. And what does a life that is submitted and, and spirit-filled look like? He says, people are putting away their addictions. People who are addicted to much wine aren't addicted to wine anymore. And husbands are loving their wives and wives are respecting their husbands and children are obeying their parents. And people are getting into this one anothering and they're compelled to come to church and the church is being built up all because this church is submitted to Christ and his will of living a life full of the spirit. Peter, again, in no uncertain terms, says, chapter 2, verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is God's will for you? He's going to say multiple times, God's will is that you do good things. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? You must do good things. And here he says, and you're going to put to silence foolish and ignorant people who look at the church and say, you're just like me. And you say, no, there's something different here. My life is different than your life. And I'd like to tell you why. He says the same thing in 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God's will for you is to do good things, to do good deeds. And he says, and through it, suffering. We know it's God's will for us to suffer. Uh, he's, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, right, this is what you were destined for. You're destined for this. And so in our passage today, God extends it again and he says in no uncertain terms, this is God's will for your life. And he shows us through all these passages that God's will is comprehensive. All things pertaining to, to life and godliness. There's not one aspect of your life, your social life, your work life, your sex life, where God does not have a design and a purpose and a plan. As we prayed earlier, we have a God of revelation who reveals his will for all aspects of your life. So you're never ignorant. You're never in the dark like the nations, wondering if what you're doing is pleasing to God. The problem is not that God is silent and we don't know what to do. The problem is that God is extremely specific and we know exactly what he requires. And it's hard to keep up with his will, isn't it? And he says today in our passage, this is the will of God for you. For your social life, your work life, your prayer life, and here he says, in your sex life, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so in our passage today, God is going to reveal for us his will for your sexual purity and your marriage bed. And there's several connections that are made in the New Testament between God's will and your sex life. This isn't something that Paul just brings out of thin air. Peter says, chapter 4, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And if you're asking, what, what does he mean by human passions? He, he clarifies, he goes on, he says, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 in our passage today, he says it directly, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So God, again, has a design for the marriage bed, and he's not shy in making it known to you. And we're not shy about proclaiming it, so we know God's will in, in all aspects of our life. And so in the context of a healthy, faithful church, and in a discussion about how to please God and what his will for our life is, this passage addresses two things. Number one, it addresses how to be sexually pure. And he gives three points, three ways that you can be sexually pure and number two, why we are to be sexually pure. And he'll give three reasons why. And so this is ethics. And in ethics, the discussion is always what to do and why. Once again, we ask the but why question. And he starts in chapters, or chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. He, he has three points on how to be sexually pure. And each one begins with the word that. First, he says that you're separate from sexual immorality. Then he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Then he says that no one transgress his brother in this matter. And so the very first point for how to be sexually pure in your life, and by the way, sexual purity doesn't stop at marriage. It doesn't stop after you've made it out of a dating life. This is something that is from the time you're a child until you're in the grave. This is something that God calls us to is, is purity. And so he begins saying that you separate from sexual immorality. And he's saying here, 
I want you to be distinct. And for all the things that don't please me with respect to this, I want you to turn away from that. And he doesn't just say, here's a list of a, a whole bunch of things that you can't do. But he says, but I've provided you a gift in Christ. And the way that you, that you live out this aspect of God's will in your life needs to be according to the way that God designed it. So there's a goodness and there's a positive aspect that God has declared to be holy and righteous and good. And so Paul doesn't say abstain from sex. Paul says abstain from sexual immorality. Engage in this in the way that God intended and designed. And the word that he uses here for sexual immorality comes up over and over again in Scripture. And the underlying word is the word porneia. Keep away from porneia. And you, I think you can even hear the root word where we get the word pornography or, or porn. And it's defined as, when you see this word sexual immorality, I want you to hear it's every sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Sexual immorality is, is an umbrella term in scripture, and it's meant to catch everything that is explicit sexual activity. It's porneia. And I, th I think of porneia, I go back to, to Proverbs 5, where Solomon says, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. He says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she's bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword, and her feet go down to death. And so he's saying there's a, there's a certain draw to, in your carnal flesh, to sexual immorality and sexual uh, explicit behavior. But God doesn't just say, I want you to avoid that. Listen to Solomon. He doesn't just give you a bunch of rules for forbidding any enjoyment of sexual expression, but no, he goes on and says... You need to do this, but keep your focus on God and what he has declared to be good. Hear how Proverbs 5 continues. Drink water from your own cistern. Let the reader understand. Do you see what he's saying? He'll make it explicit in a minute. Drink, drink from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. If you're thick and you're not, still not quite sure what he's saying, he makes it clear. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. So he doesn't just give a bunch of rules about what not to do. Here's what he's designed for you. And listen to the language. At all times may your wife delight you. Always may you be intoxicated. I think this might be the only place in scripture where the Bible says be intoxicated always. Because he, then he qualifies it with her love, right? You're given permission to enjoy this in the way God designed it and intended it. And it says if you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this, you will experience delight at all times. And so the question that he asks is rhetorical. Why would you go for anything else? Why would you pursue anything else when this is the blessing? This is what it was created to be. And it's a gift. You keep reading in, in Proverbs, he says, the opposite is not true. Verse 5, he says, your feet will go down to, into death. You will depart from the path of life. And so if you were to be sanctified and pleasing to God with respect to, your sec with respect to your sexuality, you must separate yourself from all sexual and moral expressions. That's God's will for you in Christ. And so porneia, sexual immorality, Jesus tells us, this is how serious and solemn it is. Sexual immorality is incompatible with the kingdom of God. They, they cannot go together and they do not go together. 
So Paul has a few vice lists. I'm going to read just, just two here, and I want you to see that sexual immorality is always front-loaded, as if to say, you're going to experience this. This is always in, in the front of your attention. This is serious, and you need to hear it. And it's always next to idolatry, the chief of all sins. And he always talks about sexual immorality in the context of God's kingdom. Ephesians 5.3, but porneia, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Galatians 5.19, another vice list, he, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warned you, and I warn you now, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality is incompatible with God's kingdom. This is not his design but then he continues in that same context saying, but the fruit of the spirit are what? Love, joy, you can say them with me, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so God's will for you, or we might even say these fruits of the spirit, love, joy, and peace, that doesn't just characterize your body while you're at church, right? The fruits of the Spirit extend into your work life, Paul's going to say, and the fruits of the Spirit extend into your sex life. This now is characteristic of you in all aspects of your life. And one more illustration in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. They're trying to limit what they're telling the Gentiles to do in order to keep the law, and they give them a very brief list of things that they need to do or not to do, and what makes that list is abstaining from sexual immorality. It's, this is of utmost importance. I think it's partly because it's so prevalent in the ancient culture and so prevalent in our culture. And so we must separate from sexual immorality and turn instead to what God has declared to be good. Second way that God says we are to be sexually pure, the second ethic, he says that each of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Let's read verses four to five together that you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse four, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So why does Paul over and over again prioritize sexual sin over and against other sins? Why do we keep talking about it? I think one, because sexual sins impact us differently. They're so intimate and relational and emotional. I think they, they hit us harder often than some of these other sins do. And I think, number two, that as this verse was relevant to them, it's so it is relevant to us. I think he brings it up over and over again because it's so prevalent in the culture. Because this is the first place that carnal hearts go is to sexually immoral behavior. And so God gives moral guidelines for sex here in our passage, and he's going to contrast it with the way the world views sex. And I think God here is acting like a jeweler because any jeweler who's worth his salt doesn't have a beautiful string of pearls or a beautiful diamond ring and he wants to sell it and just sets it on a shelf, right? If you want to, to show the beauty of, of diamonds, you put them on a black backdrop 
And you put a light on it so you can see it in all its splendor. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He says, if you want to see how beautiful God's sexual ethic really is, then let me show you what the world has embraced. Let me show you how dark the world has made this. That's exactly what he's doing here. He shows God's ethic against the ethic of the Thessalonians. And you go back to ancient sources, it tells us exactly what their culture was like. And as you're going to see, it's not a lot, of, it's not a lot different from what we experience day in and day out. In Bell's Guide to the New Testament, he says about this Greek culture, since a marriage was little more than an agreement to cohabit, divorce was easy. Even among the lower classes, the frequency of marriage was declining in the first century AD, and divorce was becoming more and more common. I say we see that today, beginning in California with a no-fault divorce in the 70s, um, huge spike in divorce, right? This is... This, you can get divorced for any reason. It used to be you had to have a biblical reason. Now it's any reason. Demosthenes, the ancient Greek orator of Athens, says, Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day -day physical well-being, and wives in order to bear us legitimate children to serve as trustworthy guardians over our household. Consider that. You have mistresses, you have concubines, and you have wives, and who cares? Cicero, 100 years before Paul, wrote... If anyone thinks that young men should be forbidden to have affairs, even with prostitutes, well, then he's very strict indeed. For his view is contradictory not only to the law of the present age, but even with the habits of our ancestors and with what they used to consider allowable. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? When, in fact, did that which was lawful become that which was not lawful? Do you see how little value sex has in the ancient culture? It's part of your day-to-day well-being, they say. You can get it anywhere. And so there's a lot in common with their world and ours because the significance of marriage is declining. It's the same in our culture. Their view of sex, just like ours, was, trans was transactional, and it's casual. And there's an assumption that sex outside of marriage is a legitimate form of sexual expression. And if there's one thing that our passage teaches in 1 Thessalonians 4, if there's a word for our culture today, it's that sex is not casual. Sex is holy. And the question that often gets asked of the church is, why do you care so much about what I do with my body? People on the outside, why do you care what I do in private? Why do you care what I do with my body behind closed doors? And our answer to them, we don't combat them because we find sex dirty or degrading. That's not why we combat the culture on this issue. We combat the culture because we have a high, high view of sex and sexual expression. And this is something worth fighting for. Because in our culture, sex is cheap and meaningless. And we say, may it never be so. That's not God's design and that's not God's intention. And so Christians are fighting to hold it up to the biblical standard of being holy and spiritual and a gift of God. And it's a gift that's between two lovers in the midst of a fully and permanently committed relationship. That's his design. And our culture will take a black sharpie and they're going to hit every line of this text and they, as they erase it all and they replace it with one word. And that word is consent. We worship the God of consent is the cry of the culture. And we have three sexual ethics that God gives us in this passage. And our culture in the American West has one sexual ethic and it's consent. If two people agree that nothing is morally reprehensible. Nothing incurs moral guilt. Any sexual expression, any means of gratification is appropriate. 
And this began in California in our day where it's no longer the no means no, but they're the first to enact the yes means yes. Defining what it means for two people to have an agreement to, to have sex with one another. And it was California that first required all high school health education classes to give lessons on what's called affirmative consent, which is legally putting in the precedent and the decision that sex is casual and that sex is transactional and that sex is devoid of any kind of lasting intimate connection. And it's putting into codification that sex outside of marriage is legitimate sexual expression. And Paul says in verse 5, why our culture believes this. And he says it clearly, they do not know God. Because if they knew God, and they had the mind of Christ, and they had the spirit of holiness working in them, they would have eyes to see. But as it is, they don't. Which is why the same godless expressions of Thessalonica are the same godless expressions of Shawnee America. And so this passage teaches us right here in verse 5 that sexual intimacy is found within the context of knowing God in Christ by the wisdom which comes from the Holy Spirit. And it's knowing that we engage in this the way that God intended, the way that he designed. And so despite what the culture approves is okay, we've been given the mind of Christ. God's will has been made known to us. And so now he commands us to control our bodies in holiness and in honor. In holiness and in honor. We control our bodies. Admittedly, the word body here is uh, notoriously difficult to translate. Your translation might say body or it might say acquire a wife or treat your vessel. And the difficulty is because this word body, wife, vessel in the original language means thing. How do you translate it? And, and elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated all kinds of things. It's translated goods, merchandise, vessel, jar, tool, appliance, an article, an object. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says a, literally a thing or a vessel. So how do you translate it here? And Peter, he translates it in 1 Peter 3, 7 as a wife, which is why your translation might say, take for yourself a wife. And in 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker vessel. It's the same word. And so some say, because he says a wife is a vessel here, Paul must be using the same language. We need to treat our vessel honorably. But it's my conviction that the meaning behind the word translated body or wife or vessel is consistent with the last 15 years of research where there's now ancient sources that have revealed that this word was used of not just the body, but a very specific part of the body, the sex organ, specifically the male sex organ. And so the translation is, is good where you control your body in holiness, in holiness and in honor, but know that the meaning is more specific God has a design for the human members. And so Paul uses the same word in Romans 9. He uses the word vessel and saying that in every household, there are vessels for honorable use. You can consider this yourself, what vessels in your kitchen might be for honorable use, and there's vessels for dishonorable use. You can think about your own restroom and the things that might be dishonorable use. And so Paul brings the same word to the discussion here, and he's saying... Whereas the culture burns with passionate lust and looks for every means of gratification, that is the wrong sexual expression. Sexual immorality is not treating your body honorably. God has a design for your body and for every part of your body, and he says that is dishonorable use. Paul says it's not controlling your vessel in an honorable way. Your, your body was made for honor, and the passage says what that means, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
That you know how to control your body in holiness and honor, and that you transgress, you not transgress and wrong your brother in this matter. That's the ethic. That's how you treat your vessel and, and the other's vessel honorably. And it's, it's not just the secular culture we have to guard against. We, we want to guard against the sexual culture that's prevalent in our day, but we also have to guard against the culture that's in our own churches because there's unhealthy things that have come up even within the purity culture of our church. We make virginity in church an idol. And we tell young men and young women that the greatest gift that they can give to their future spouses is their own purity. And that's not true. Rachel Welcher writes in her book, Taking Back or Talking Back to Purity Culture, quote, God's sexual ethic is first meant to reveal our sin as utterly sinful. That's one of the purposes of the law, and to devastate us into acknowledging our need for a savior. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount reveals that we're all sexual sinners, virgins, serial adulterers, and porn addicts. We all fall short of God's command to see one another as brothers and sisters in all purity. The main point is not pursuing sexual purity, but recognizing our impurity and our desperate need for Christ. It's a beautiful quote. And she goes on, she records a conversation that she has with her friend who says, I no longer see purity as a gift one spouse gives to another. God has made me pure through Christ, and he alone keeps me pure. Purity then is mainly about me and God, not me and my husband. Sexual purity is the natural overflow of humbly placing myself under God's authority, acknowledging my own sinfulness and depending on Christ to help me walk in holiness. When I'm living in purity, my husband and my marriage definitely benefit, but that is God's grace, not my own doing. The greatest gift that you can give to your future spouse is a heart and a mind and a soul that is submissive to God the Father in pursuit of his will. That's, that's the greatest gift that you can give. Submission to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so Paul teaches in our passage that holiness and, and purity are, be to found, are, are to be found in all spheres of life, in your sex life, but also in your work life and in your social life. And so we're not called to the passionate lust of the culture, but to the holiness which God himself supplies. And we're not called to the legalism of the purity culture, but to the holiness which God himself promises to give us. And so God's will is our sanctification, not our immediate perfection. And God has sworn that he will grant us holiness, but he doesn't do it in every sphere of your life the second that you're converted. And so when we fail, God extends grace. And when we fail, the church should extend grace. Third way that you can remain sexually pure or, or fulfill God's will in your life regarding this is that he says that no one transgress his brother in this matter. Verse 6 it says, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The word transgress means to sin against. And it means to step over the lawful limit. There's a, there's a barrier and you're stepping over it to enter into God's realm of, of sexual immorality. And so again, my, the image comes to Proverbs 5 where the, the, the way of pure sexuality is pictured as the way of life. And to step off of it is the way to death or as it says, is the way to Sheol. And men and women are stepping off of it onto a path that leads to death and they don't even realize it. And so that's what transgression is. He says, don't, don't step off of the right path and so sin against and wrong your brother. And sin against, what we've just seen that word, but the word to wrong also means, or could also mean to defraud. Don't defraud your, mother, your, your brother in this. And it carries the notion of taking advantage of somebody. 
And so in the context of sexual purity, it means taking sexual advantage of somebody, gaining sexual pleasure at the expense of somebody else. It says, don't wrong or transgress your brother in this way. Paul says that such acts aren't only sin in themselves, but they're disregarding the sanctity of other people, which shows that sexual acts may be in private, but they always bring other people into it. And so sexual sin has the power to destroy relationships. I think you well know that, that pornography addictions will physically change the chemistry of your own mind. And they will affect not only your relationship with yourself, but future relationships and future, future people that are even outside of your relationship. And adultery, when it surfaces, impacts people far outside of just your own marriage. This is something that, that hits all of your social circles. And a lot of Christians can overreact to this. And we go the way of Origen's threefold path of sanctification. We go in the same path as the Roman Catholic Church, which we say, if, if there's all of this pressure and solemn urges and warnings, then why don't we just get rid of it altogether? Which is what the Catholics have done. Any priest has to take a vow of chastity. No sex allowed. Which is why I think there's so much acting out within the priesthood sexually because you've repressed this and you've taken what God has declared to be good and saying you cannot enjoy this. And this is, this is what they do. And I want to point out that Scripture gives very few instances of celibacy. There's very few times in Scripture where God says you are not to have sex. And one comes from people that he gives a strange lack of sexual desire. There's some people in this world who just really never experience that temptation. And for those people, he says, you may have the gift of singleness and you may be called to singleness so that you don't have divided interests anymore. Now you're not only just pursuing your husband and Christ, but you can focus solely on Christ and that can be good and, and, and well for your soul. And the only other time is a brief comment in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, where he says, you, your husband and the husband and the wife may separate themselves for a brief time for the purpose of praying or fasting, right? And then he says, and come together again. And I know a lot of men and women who withhold sex from one another, and it's usually not for fasting or prayer. But he says here, the command, the imperative from Paul, do not deprive one another. That's a, that's a command. And what's he talking about? You well know what he's talking about. Do not deprive one another. And if you do, for a season after you have prayed another command, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do not wrong somebody else in this matter. And so these are the ethics of sex. These are how we are to be sexually pure as Christians. And I want to read one translation, and I want you to see how beautiful this individual rendered this passage. He says, this is God's will, your holiness, that you avoid sexual immorality, each of you attaining and exercising sexual self-mastery in a holy and honorable fashion, not falling prey to passionate lust like the culture does. Isn't that beautiful? That really gets at the heart of what Paul is trying to say. And as is proper in any ethical dis discussion, we're not only told how to be sexually pure, but you're told why we are to be sexually pure. We move into verses 6 to 8. He gives three reasons, past, present, and future. It's so, it's so easy for you to remember. He says, there's the past call of God on your life. You've been called to something greater than whatever sexual things that this culture has. 
God has a design for this, and he's called you to it. Then there's the present gift of the Holy Spirit, who through his help, you can actually abide by the ethics that God has given you. And then finally, there's future judgment as a solemn warning and reminder that God is an avenger against all these things. We already talked about judicial holiness. We'll look first at at future judgment because Paul warns about eschatological end times judgment against sin. And we've seen that God is holy, but part of that holiness is his judicial holiness where he reacts against all forms of sin and ungodliness. And he says, I want you to be solemnly warned against this thing because sexual sin, as any sin, are the very things that God has moved to work against. And so he says, remember, I reminded you beforehand. He says in verse 6, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And he says, look, I warned you about this when I was with you face to face. Unless you forget now that I'm apart from you, I'm going to put it in writing. You need to give very serious consideration to this matter. God is an avenger with these very things. God is holy. He calls you to be holy as he is holy and to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So there's a future judgment and future judgment just doesn't come as end times judgment. It also comes in temporal judgment in the form of consequences because there's consequences in this life to sexual immorality. And part of those are gonna train you to be holy as as you move through them. But sexual sin for one hinders your assurance of salvation because the moment that you're trapped in some form of sexual sin, your assurance begins to diminish and you begin to waver spiritually and you begin to wonder, could even I be saved? Lord, am I even numbered among your church? It hits you at the level of assurance. It can destroy a marriage and it can destroy a relationship, sometimes irreparably. And it opens up your relationship to things like STIs and STDs. And in the world of scripture, God invites you into a world where those don't even exist. If we would all follow the Christian sexual ethic, there would be no STIs or STDs. That's the beauty and blessedness of the world that God is inviting you to step into. And we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but there's judgment in the form of consequences. Where if you follow God's will and God's way and design for your life and for your marriage, you don't have to worry about those things. There's no consequences. They're only positive. And so there's really no benefit outside of sexual immorality except for temporal sexual gratification. Craig Rochelle said it well. He says, when you sin, it's a lot like sneezing. And sexual sin is the same way. It feels good for a moment, but then there's snot everywhere. And it's, it's disgusting. You have to clean up all of the mess that you've made spiritually. And so scripture says God is an avenger on all these things. Future judgment. Second, in verse 7, God says, or Paul says, through the Holy Spirit, that there's the past call of God. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. And again, God is holy, holy, holy. This is the third time we've seen this word holiness in this passage. Holiness or sanctification. And you've been called, he says, to something greater. The call to salvation is accompanied by the call to a holy life. I'm going to read again what we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 6.13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's your calling. That's the calling of a holy life. The past call of God. And then finally, he says, the present gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives you his spirit as a gift to keep the very standards that he's commanded. So he says in verse 7 again, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And he says, if you disregard these teachings, like our culture, that take a black sharpie and erase everything that scripture says here, they're disregarding not man. We didn't come up with these things ourselves. We're not preaching our own ethic. That's what the Christian purity culture is, and we're, we're staying away even from that. These are not mankind's commands. These are God's. And so there's a solemn warning here, and we have his spirit who guides us into all truth. And I want to remind you that for those who know God and who love God, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's the promise, even in this sphere. So in conclusion, God has given us all things pertaining to God, all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's revealed his will for every aspect and every sphere of our life. He's given us boundaries and morals and ethics for every situation so that we're never ignorant of what he desires for us. We never can plead ignorant of the will of God. And by grace, he's not left us in the dark about how we are to interact sexually in this life. He says, first, that you separate from sexual immorality. That you know how to control your body in holiness and in honor. And that no one transgresses his brother in this matter. So contra our culture that doesn't understand the difference between love and lust and between what is honorable and what is dishonorable, we have the word and the spirit who guide us into holy living. And contra the purity culture which pursues virginity as the main thing, God teaches that yes, we are to be pure before we're married. We're also to be pure while we're dating. We're also to be pure while we're courting and while we're engaged and while we're married. And even if we're not married and that purity extends church far beyond the bedroom. Purity that God calls us to goes to all spheres of life and all spheres of ministry. And so purity that moves to every facet of your life as God reveals his will for you directly as he says, this is the will of God, church, your sanctification, your holiness. And let's go to him now and pray that he would help us with this task. Oh, Lord God, we thank you uh, for, for the gift of marriage. Uh, for the gift of singleness, for the gift of sex, Lord, to be enjoyed how you designed it to be. And so, God, keep us strong through the power of your Holy Spirit, using these means of future judgment and past call to be ever present in our minds so that we're not tempted to step off the path of life into the path that leads to Sheol. And, Lord, we see that the lips of a forbidden woman are like oil. She drips like with honey, Lord, and you know, having walked this earth for 30 years, how difficult it is to remain pure. But God, this is our calling. And so we pray that you would keep us, guide us and direct us through your word and through your son and through your spirit and through this church body. That we could keep one another morally chaste and sexually pure, Lord. Keep this ever in front of our minds. Thank you for revealing your will so that we don't have to worry about how we're to act in this manner, God. But... Help us to stay with this strong standard. We ask all this in the name of your son. Amen.